chapter 19. If you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 19. If you don't, uh, the folks will be walking down the aisles with Bibles. You just raise your hand, they'll give you one. New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, the third book of the New Testament, chapter 19. Before we, we stand for reading out of the passage, I'm gonna set up a little bit of context. Uh, it is the triumphal entry. It's the beginning of Palm Sunday. It's the beginning of Holy Week uh, for the Christian faith. Back in 2019, this is when the governor decided that he was going to say the church was non-essential and he wanted to do it right in the middle of our Holy Week. A direct violation of the First Amendment under the guise of an emergency declaration that I think is still in force, which is obnoxious for a virus that has a 99.7% survival rate at the most liberal definition of that. But there's no virus that merits the suspension of, an art, of, our, of our inalienable rights ever. And I share that because it was fitting that we would see the contrast of a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. And then in the midst of this attempt to infringe on those inalienable rights using a virus and fear and a narrative with censorship to silence doctors and opposing views. And by the way, the bills that are before the legislature, just so you know, every bill that's before the legislature right now, why we're doing the defeat, the mandates, every bill that's before the legislature is a capricious attack by the legislature to come after us for everywhere we've been successful. So if, if a doctor stands in opposition with an opposite narrative, they want to censor them and, and revoke their license here in the state of California. They want a ministry of justice or truth where they're gonna declare what's true. And, and we know, we know that the truth watchers on the internet are like so accurate, un unbelievably accurate. Uh, it's hyperbole, it's not true. And so they're coming after everyone that stood. These bills are, and, and they're scared. Uh, they're firing everything they have because they know the midterms are coming up, they're scared. And we're watching citizens rise up. It's, it's not Republican against Democrat or independent. It's, forget the letter. It's citizens against the elite. And we're, we're tired of it. And we're, we're unifying like I've never seen before in the history of this state. Because they're coming after our kids. And we're, we're, we're done with that. They're way out over their skis. And they need to be removed, each and every one of them. Now I say that because there is an excitement that's gathering politically. But I want to emphasize that Palm Sunday, fittingly enough, contrasts the kingdom of man with the kingdom of God. We are committed to contending in the ecclesia, the ecclesia, the public square, for the wise restraints that make men free. But remember this, the law doesn't save, it preserves. The law is a school teacher that points us to Christ until faith comes. But the law doesn't save, it can only preserve. There's only one who saves. His name is Jesus. Amen. Now, he had been prophesied as being the Messiah, the Holy One, the Deliverer. And they expected his triumphal entry because they were seeking a deliverance from the tyranny, not of the sin in their lives, but of the oppression of Rome. Most of Rome 
in the Roman Empire were slaves. The elite ruled the many. They wanted Jesus to come in and deliver them from a political foe. They didn't understand the significance of this Savior. Jesus didn't come to deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. He came to deliver them from a greater tyrant. Our sin nature. Sin. We hate that word. It's reviled in our culture today. It's too bad because it's very easy to explain where we'd all understand where we fit in the definition of that word. I've shared the definition many times and I'll do it many more times because it's so simplistic. It's, it's an archer's term. Here's the bullseye. There's where the arrow lands. It's called the sin distance, how far the arrow's fallen from perfection. Sin distance. So if you struggle with being called a sinner, let me just ask you this, are you perfect? Now you understand you're a sinner. There's your arrow. Can you humbly accept that? Because if you can, we can move on. You don't have to be so prideful. Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm more moral than you are, Pastor McCoy. Great. So my arrow's out here. But can you at least acknowledge you've missed the mark? Well, I, I, well maybe a little. <laughs> well, we have a videotape of what you do in secret. Would you like us to show that? <laughs> Could you imagine? I was in a staff meeting one time and we had a, a fellow who was living in our residential housing and he was an alcoholic and we were asking the staff, how's the guy doing? And then one of the guys go, well, you know, they gave him a pill that every time he drinks, he throws up. And one of the staff members goes, wouldn't it be great if you could take a pill that you threw up every time you sinned? And our senior pastor, Don McClure, goes, no. <laughs> the whole church would be vomiting. It's like, hey, happy son. <laughs> How you, uh, let's open up the, uh, it's like, clean up aisle, every aisle, clean it up. So I, I think we can move on from the sinner idea. Now what separates Christianity from every religion in the world is every religion in the world is trying to get to the bullseye by good works. God's a standard, I'm not. You can surpass me in your morality, but God's a standard. And there's none perfect, none righteous, no, not one. You'll never hit the bullseye. You can shoot all day, but you know the things you, the things you know you are supposed to do, you don't do those. Those things you want to do, those you don't do. And those things you don't want to do, those you do. And you're like, I swear to God I'll never do it again. And you do it again. Maybe I'm the only one. I thought I was in a room with honest people. And, and... And you think, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And, and this is what makes Christianity different. God doesn't, God doesn't help you hit the bullseye. He just, he just moves the bullseye to where you are. He imputes his righteousness to your account. He comes up and takes residence in your life. You see, you and I have a problem. We can't say no. I lived, I lived a long portion of my life never being able to say no to sin. You want another drink? Yes. Yes, I would. Yes, I'd, I'd have two of those. Oh, that, that sounds fun. Yes, let's do that. One works, let's do two. 
Oh, well, double four. And, and sin is pleasurable for a season. It is a lot of fun. But the end therein is death. Death to relationships, death to your body, death to your mental health. And the way of the transgressor is hard. I mean, if you just pursue pleasure, you just end up empty. You become like that which you worship. You worship money, you become cold and lifeless. But God comes that you might have life and life more abundant, and he does that by taking up residence in your life. You become a new creature in Christ. You're, you're a dichotomy, a two-part being, a body and, and soul, the intellect, or body and spirit, or the soul, excuse me, and the intellect. You, you can reason and your body functions, but the spirit, the pneuma, is when Christ takes up residence. You're, you're rearranged. You're, you're, the spirit tells the mind what the body will do. Currently, you're driven by your bodily desires and you're debased and you just go to the least common denominator. And we really don't have to practice to do the things that aren't good for us. They just come natural. I was talking to... Ambassador Rick Grinnell, he was on the live stream, and we had a real cool discussion, and I didn't go into depth, but he professes himself to be a Christian. He's, a, he's, he's, uh, he's gay, and, 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 he, and he said, you know, God doesn't make mistakes. And I said, no, but sin does. And, and he, he said, well, I, w- I was born this way. And I said, I, I, look, I'll, I'll grant that to you. I was born to sleep with every woman I, I met, but when I came to Christ, I have to submit my sexuality to the Lord. I mean... <laughs> work with me here, you know, and, and we kind of smiled, and we, that's for another time, because we want to talk about other things, and bless his heart, he's pro-life, and he, he defends religious liberty, um, I, he's a friend, and, and I, I just, I so appreciate this man, but I think all of us come to that place where, who, who's the Lord of our life, and, and you, don't, you don't get to rewrite and, and make God who you want him to be, and there are absolutes that govern us, and so... The law is important. It is the wise restraints that make us free. And from the moral law, we get civil law. And it preserves mankind. And, and if you violate that, we get ourselves in a world of hurt. Now we're watching as men are, uh, a man is women, uh, winning the women's national NC2A division swimming championships. A, a man. And I'm thinking, where are the feminists? Men now dominate women's sports. And we're like, well, you know, I, they're transitioning. Seriously, the church, many think this way. There are two genders. Supreme Court nominee, I think now, Supreme Court, I've followed it because I'm nauseated by it. Can you tell us what a woman is? No, I, I really can't. Two X chromosomes and the ability to give birth. Stupid. Work with me here. Right? No? No, no, there's, there's more than two genders. There's how many? And what... <laughs> I can't repeat what I heard. It's funny though. <laughs> you know, what are your adjectives and how do you define yourself and your pronouns? And, and I'll leave that alone. It was very funny. <laughs> but it's so confusing that we call evil good and good evil. And, and the difference between a politician and one convicted and the why and what they do is Jesus is the fact that they don't acclimate to culture, they drive it. And they know what's true, and they stand upon it no matter the cost. Politics is done by addition and multiplication, not by division and subtraction. So there's times where, you know, you're going to have to work with others that you don't fully agree with. And, and you win by increments in politics. And, and we're committed to that here. But let me make something very clear as we're here on Palm Sunday. That is secondary. Our salvation isn't coming from Washington, D.C., nor is it coming from Sacramento, nor is it coming from the two candidates here. Our salvation comes from Jesus Christ and him alone. 
Unless the Lord builds a temple, we labor in vain. We are polishing brass on the Titanic if we don't get this right. And the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, all focused on that. And all of us, regardless of why you're here, you may be here because you love the idea of liberty and you're drawn here. You haven't really comprehended this Jesus Christ. You haven't comprehended all that we follow. But I want you to know the why and what we do, and it's preeminent in everything we do, and that is Jesus. There's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. This is, this is critical to the why and what we do. The law preserves, but Jesus saves. Now, all that being said, that'll bring us to the passage, and I think you'll gain a great understanding of why this is one of two occasions in the entirety of Scripture where the God of the universe who holds the heavens in the span of his hand wept. The idea of weeping, he, he lamented. He, 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 he was so burdened. The weeping was, was one who was mourning, like the loss of a loved one. That's the Greek word for Jesus wept. And why would he weep in a triumphal entry? We're going to take a look at that. Please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Luke 19, I will begin at verse 28. I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. When Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, and it came to pass when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village opposite you where you enter. You will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it, bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way, found it just as Jesus had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said, why are you loosing it? And they said, this is not the colt you're looking for. No, they, just kidding. <laughs> they said, the Lord has need of him. Probably the same way, Jedi mind trick. Then they brought him to Jesus and they threw their own clothes on the colt and they, sent Jesus, they set Jesus on the colt. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God. And this is messianic based on Psalm 118 with a loud voice for all mighty works they had seen saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, teacher, rebuke your disciples because they were calling him the Messiah. And he had never allowed them to publicly proclaim this, and now he's embracing it. And he doesn't silence them. He says to the Pharisees, he answered them and said, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And then, as Jesus drew near, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you in one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Speaking of Masada, we'll cover that momentarily. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this day, the triumphal entry. We thank you that you are Hosanna. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
You did not silence the people from declaring that you are the Messiah, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You said the stones would cry out, but yet you also wept over the city. You didn't just weep. You were burdened. You lamented. You poured your heart out. You cried tears that just flooded down your face. Your heart was broken as you observed the city and what would make for their peace. But it was hidden from their eyes. You declared what would happen because you had embraced the false idea of what liberty is and who you were seeking to be delivered from. And yet, the greatest tyrant dwelt within your own soul. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see the truth, and that truth would set us free. That we would not miss the great purpose of your triumphal entry, not into Jerusalem, but into our heart. And God, we open it for you today. We welcome you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We thank you and we love you. Bless us now. And God, do what no man can do. Save us, Lord. God, I know that hearts are being stirred by the truth of your word, not by any man in this room. We know we need a savior because we just can't hit that mark. Lord, move the bullseye. Give us your righteousness. Deliver us from the tyranny of sin. Give us the ability to say no to that which destroys us and our families and our communities. That we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Help us, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat, if you would. Jesus drew near. He saw the city. He wept over it. He's coming in on the triumphal entry. He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when the enemies will build an embankment around you. Speaking about Masada, the last ground that the Israelites held before Rome took over and they never had that ground until, what, 1948? They take every Israeli defense soldier up into Masada. It's like the Alamo of Israel. You can see at the top that they had a dwelling for a king and yet this remnant of Jews contending with Rome, fighting the tyranny, you can see from from the pinnacle of Masada, you can see the outlines of the Roman encampments on either side. You can see the embankment that they built over time, just bringing dirt to cause the centurions and, and the Roman legion to breach the gates of Masada. As they were running out of food supplies, as the, the Romans were getting closer, they looked at one another and they, they didn't believe in suicide. It was it was an anathema to the Jewish faith, and so they played a game where it was a game of chance, and, and the one who would win would, would be the one that would be the last remaining and have to take their own life or allow the Romans to kill them because they knew they'd be so abused by the Romans, this person would kill them and be the last standing to face whatever death. When they excavated Masada, they found what Josephus had written about historically, that those instruments that, that did that game of chance. Fascinating. 
Masada doesn't have a lot of biblical significance, but Jesus is referring to it within a very short amount of time. What it is you want to be delivered from Rome, they're going to enslave you. They're going to conquer the entirety of your land. They'll build an embankment around you. They will close in on every side. They will level you and the children within you to the ground. You will not defeat this tyrant. You want me to deliver you from that, but that's not what's going to save you. Masada is interesting because I always take a break when I go to Masada. I leave it to the other tour guide to do, and it's hot, and it's a long way up, and usually people I go with want to run up, and I just feel less than a man because I'm watching these guys run up, and I'm taking the tram, looking at them, sweating. <laughs> yeah. Why are you running? Did the other tram break down? I, just, I can never understand why people run. Did your car break? You know, I'm, I don't know. If I have an urge to exercise, if I lay down, it goes away. It's really amazing. <laughs> but I, I was coming down from Masada, and I was going to take a break because there you could get a cheeseburger, this meat with cheese on it. And it's a, an oddity in Israel because of kosher laws. You can't cook a, a child, a, 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 a calf in the milk of its mother. I, I don't know how they come up with making that you can't have a cheeseburger. But I found a place, and it's not there anymore because I guess they got caught. But you've gained the secret. <laughs> if you gained the secret password, they'd put cheese on it. You're like, yes. And I'm coming down the escalator, and a Texas big boy's coming up because I was a teaching pastor for the trip with Governor Rick Perry. And he's coming down. He goes, where are you going? I go, ah. he goes, and there anything Christian up there? I go, that's a Masada. It's, it's like the Alamo of Israel because he's from Texas. He's like, oh, yeah, nothing Christian? Well, not really. I mean, no, not much. Where are you going? I'm going to get cheeseburger. They have cheeseburgers here? Yeah. <laughs> so he comes down and it ended up being the guy that bought the building here that we're in. And that's the magic of Masada. Cheeseburger building. Boom. That's how it, it's just, that's how it works. And... <laughs> Has nothing to do with the text, but that was fun. <laughs> True, too. But Masada is what Jesus is describing, that the tyranny of Rome would not be stopped by my entry. And they didn't understand it, but he wept. He's only wept twice in his entirety on the earth, and this is one that's recounted by Luke, which brings me to the point of the message. In the limited time we have, I want to show you and begin with a grave. This is a grave of Sir Robert Anderson. He lived in the 1800s, died in the 1900s by the Spanish influenza. He was quite a man. He was a theologian, but before he was a theologian, he went from 1841 to 1918. But before he was a theologian, he had an interesting life. He was the second assistant commissioner of crime of the London Metropolitan Police from 1888 to 1901. He was also an intelligence officer, theologian, and prolific writer, including writing more than 20 books on religious topics. His research was extensive. The information in his books is thorough. His book, The Coming Prince, which you can find free. It's, it's not copyright anymore. You can find it online for free. It's a fascinating book. And you can go into great depth of what I'm about to share this, this afternoon. The Coming Prince gives clear documentation of the timing and accuracy of the biblical prophecy of Daniel 9 and can be used as a strong, effective, apologetic resource to prove the veracity of the Bible. Today... Sir Robert Anderson is best known for this book, The Coming Prince, in which he explains a prophecy of Daniel 9.24. Daniel said the Jewish Messiah would come 490 years after the commandment of Cyrus, king of Persia, 
to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. And Anderson's calculations showed that Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem in public acclaim, Luke 19, known as a triumphal entry, on the precise day that he had prophesied by Daniel. Daniel's written hundreds of years before this triumphal entry in Luke 19. This is what the book looks like. It's called The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. Daniel was sent into exile, as you can read in Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, to give you hope in a future, and that's not something you put in a greeting card. It was a declaration of promise from God for the Jews that were being sent into exile for 200 years. He said, when you're there, pray for the peace of the city, build houses, plant vineyards, be given in marriage, give your children in marriage. He said, just bloom where you're planted. You'll be in exile. And he had lost his family. He had, he had been enslaved by three separate administrations in the pagan realm of Babylon. He had been castrated as, and made a eunuch. And his friends, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, had all been taken as young boys and put in the service of this pagan king, separated from their family, but they had never forsaken their faith in God. And he served three three administrations, and never compromised his faith. And when they said that you have to bow down whenever the music is playing to this pagan god, Daniel wouldn't do that. They said you're no longer to pray publicly. Well, then he'd open the windows and let them see him praying, like, come get me. He was, he was he, he, civil disobedience to the greatest degree. I, I'm motivated by the man. You, you tell me I can't worship God, good luck. You know, Governor Mussolini, you have opened up a can of Jesus you won't get the lid on. You don't understand that you're... When, when we were at Disney at the headquarters, the, the news media said, do you realize this giant you're taking on at Disney? And we're like, does Disney realize the giant that they've just taken on? The God of the universe who holds the heaven in the span of his hand? They're gnats on the butt of an elephant. Their stock prices are tanking. 172,000 people have dropped subscriptions. If you're still on Disney, I ask you right now, why? Why? Why would you invest in the poisoning of the children of this nation? It's not like they're even hiding it anymore. It's not even subliminal. It's all out there. And you're a steward of their lives. You'll give an accounting before the Lord. Eisner said Christians love their entertainment more than their God. I think we're at a point now where we're like, you know what, maybe back then it was so subtle we weren't so sure that we wanted to join this, but now we're watching and everyone is jumping on board. And these are people that aren't churchgoers, by the way. They're just sick of the indoctrination. There's no entertainment anymore. It is, the whole purpose is to redefine the human mind. It has nothing to do with science, biology. You can't even defend it. It's just stupid. Well, Daniel lived in a world like that and he never compromised his faith. He exercised liberty, even though he knew it cost him. He was threatened he would always end up winning. And it was late when he was old, they called to him as they were partying with the vessels that had been taken from the temple. They're praising the gods of wood, hay and stubble and they're pouring wine in the holy vessels that had been stolen from the temple. A hand appears with, without an arm attached to it, writing on the wall, many, many tekafarsal. The, the king says his knees shook, which is knocked, which means another interpretation would be he soiled himself. Like, don't, don't wash him, just burn the underwear. Just, and Because and he, he was so scared. And he calls for an interpretation. No one can do it, and it's Daniel who interprets it. says, your kingdom has been weighed, and the balance has been found wanting. Tonight your life will be required of you. 
You can mess with the holy vessels, but they're ultimately going to end up in your demise. And that night, Cyrus diverted a river, came under the gate of the impregnable Babylon, and killed the king and took over. Greeted by Isaiah, who was an old man by the time, unrolled a scroll by Isaiah, also Jeremiah, and showed him these things. Cyrus saw his name that was written on ancient vellum, maybe, papyrus, I don't know. And his name was written, and it had been written hundreds of years earlier. He says, how, how did he know? Because this God is beyond the space-time continuum. Before you were born, he knew you. It spoke that he would divert the rivers, that he'd come under the gate. It was just absolutely clear in his prophetic statement. And Cyrus so moved as a pagan king gives this Jewish people the freedom of religion to go and rebuild their temple. And Daniel, prior to witnessing to Cyrus and revealing this scroll, he had been given a word from God and he wrote this down in Isaiah 9.24. 70 weeks were determined for your people and for your holy city, meaning Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy God wants to deal with your sin. That's why you're in exile. You want to be restored. He's sending his Messiah. Wait for him. There's 70 weeks will be determined, and this is how it'll break down. And this goes to verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. There were four possible interpretations that only one of them included the streets and the wall. And that was Nehemiah chapter 2. When Nehemiah approached Artaxerxes as the cupbearer, and Artaxerxes the king said, why is your face sad? Because as a cupbearer you could show no emotion. He was the one to test to see if the wine was poison. Nehemiah was a Jew. He lamented over the condition of Jerusalem. He had been in exile. He became dreadfully afraid when the king said, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. I can see it on your face. And so I became dreadfully afraid and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? And the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, Jerusalem, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, so it was a decree not only of his but of the queen, how long will your journey be and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. And furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given for me to the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple for the city wall and for the houses that I will occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God. And boom, the clock begins to tick because we have the outline of when that started in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. We know that exact date. And this is where Sir Robert Anderson started to calculate knowing how a Jewish calendar operates and so as he put it together, 483 years were completed at a triumphal entry of Jesus, Sir Robert Anderson's significant work. The coming prince followed this argument in great detail. Anderson, using a 360-day year, which Israel used in Daniel's day, calculated 173,880 days from the decree to the triumphal entry, fulfilling the prophecy to the day. 
It is customary for the Jews to have 12 months of 360 days each and then to insert a 13th month occasionally when necessary to correct the calendar. That's Walverden. There was only one occasion in our Lord's earthly ministry on which he is depicted presenting himself openly as Zion's king, the so-called triumphal entry recorded in each one of the gospels and fulfilling Zechariah 9.9 and Psalm 118.26. And that's, that's the only possible way. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. This is, the Lord has need of it. Okay. You don't look manually riding on a colt. Your legs are dragging. King coming in. Freedom! It's like a man driving a Vespa. Powder blue. <laughs> I have a picture of me on one of them, that's so why I can say that. <laughs> I gave it away. I was so embarrassed. Yeah. Where were we? <laughs> Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. The calculation of these days by Sir Robert Anderson comes to 173,740. You add 14th. March to 6th April, both inclusive. 24 days add for leap years, 116 days equals a total. He went through the whole, you just break it down, it's almost 16 chapters. It's fascinating with this, this legal mind. He comes up with 173,880 days. And you look at Luke 19, 41 and 42. As Jesus drew near, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the, the, the things that would make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. What was Daniel's prophecy? What did he say in, in Daniel 9? He said, he's going to reconcile your sin. He's gonna restore you. This has nothing to do with Rome. These are good men, but they're not gonna save us. 173,880 days. King Artaxerxes gives the decree to Nehemiah, the roads, the walls. Timer begins. Click, click, click. Every good Jewish scholar would understand this. They're waiting for the Messiah. There's an expectation of the Messiah. They're lauding him. They're praising him. The Pharisees say, tell them to be silent. They're, they're saying, you're the king, you're the Messiah. He says, if they are silent, the rocks will cry out. It's time. I, I can't deny it anymore. 173,880 days. It's go time. The foal is here, Isaiah 9, 9. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Psalm 118, verse 28. It's all there, the more sure, sure word of prophecy, speaking beyond the space-time continuum. The God who knows yesterday, today, and all points in between, he is eternal. Not, you're predestined, but not predetermined. And he sees this, and he's calculated it, and he's coming in, and he says, it's time, and there's nothing I'm going to do to stop them. Magnificent, fascinating. Thousands of years of scriptural authority pertaining to this one moment and they all know it. And then he stops. And he begins to weep over the city. 
if you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that would make for your peace. It was a turning point for the Jewish people. Their leaders had rejected Jesus. Most of the people had followed their leaders. Yet if they had known Jesus and his work as Messiah, they might have been spared the destruction to come. But this is the part that hits me when it says, the things that make for your peace. I mean, the name Jerusalem means city of peace. But they didn't know the things that would make for their peace. Jesus knew that their desire for a political Messiah, one that would contend with Rome, would bring total destruction in less than a generation. The cry was that of a frustrated desire. He had visited the city. He wanted to deliver them from the greatest tyrant of all, their sin. They couldn't say no. They were slaves. We're slaves to sin. Our spiritual blindness thinks that we can legislate ourselves out of this mess. We think that the law saves, it doesn't. The law, the law reveals our sin nature. The law can preserve, but the law doesn't save. And they're looking for a political Messiah. I can't think of anything more fitting that the governor would try to shut us down. We would contend with the governor. We would step into the ecclesia. We would contend for our religious liberty. We would declare him to be a tyrant. But let us not forget all of our political fervor is worthless. As the Bible says, unless, unless Christ be the foundation, we labor in vain. God must be preeminent. He, 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 is, he is the preeminence of the temple. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. Unless the Lord builds a temple, we labor in vain. It's fruitless unless Jesus is the why and what you're doing. You'll never have freedom and liberty until you have, you have come to realize the source of that is the Messiah. The one who's come to save, to seek and to save that which is lost and it begins individually in every human heart. That's why our founders gave those 16 tortured words because they wanted you to know that a republic or any government on the earth will ultimately end up in enslavement if the people don't realize before God, he will move the bullseye to where you are if you would call upon the name of the Lord. Blessed is a nation whose God is the Lord. Sin is a reproach to any people. And he comes to set the captives free and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And that truth is Jesus. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. The means exclusive and no other. C.S. Lewis said it's the trilemma of God. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. He either said he was God and he, he, was, he was just insane and he wasn't God so he's a lunatic. He either knew he wasn't God and wanted you to think he was and he's a liar or he is God. There's no other option, he's not a good man. He's either God or he's evil. The tomb is empty, the prophecies are fulfilled and he comes and he weeps because politics will not save us, they will preserve us. They will point us to him until faith comes. And these laws of nature and nature's God and the preservation of these inalienable rights are critical for man to grope in the darkness to find this living God. Because we stand upon truths that point to him. The streams of liberty point to God. 
All men are without excuse. All creation speaks of the glory of God. You can say, well, I've never seen him. I've never seen the designer or builder of this building. But I know he exists because there's order. The sun rises, the sun sets, there's four seasons. You can count on them. You can plant fields upon them. You look at the intricacy of the human body to the smallest cell. It is a designer's blessing. There is a God. And the two great truths of the universe, there's a God and you're not him. And he's come to set you free and he's given his son that you would call upon his name and be delivered from the greatest tyrant enslaving you, which is your sin nature. You say, God, save me. I'm separated from you. Move the bullseye. Help me. Take up residence in my life. Show me how to live for you. Give me the ability to say no to the things that destroy me and my family. God, I want to be free. I don't want to be a slave to sin. I want to be a slave to righteousness. I want to live. I want life and life more abundant. I want purpose and meaning. Politics becomes so empty without you. But it becomes so fruitful when you are the center and the reason why we do what we do. We want people to see you. We want to preserve them, that they grope in the darkness and a government that 86 cents of every dollar in evangelism comes from this nation that has been given unprecedented freedom for 245 years because its founders understood the nature of man that, that the legislature would never step in the way of the conscience of man and God. But they won't save you. They'll preserve you. But Jesus today on the triumphal entry weeps, and he weeps for this simple reason. He died on that cross and endured the way of pain and the shame and the humiliation. No man took his life, he willingly laid it down. He was the freest man. And he came with you on his mind. And he weeps because people will actually reject that. He has put a battleship at the gates of hell he has made propitiation. He's paid the penalty in full. And the only way to enter hell is to step over that cross, that cross and say, I don't need a savior. And it's pride that has poisoned you and, and damned you to hell. He doesn't want you there. You're entering there on your own free accord. You don't blame him for that. He's taken care of the systemic nature of your sin. He's given you the antidote. He's paid the penalty. He bled and died. He paid the price. You're free if you'll accept the, the deliverance. You can labor in politics your whole life. You can think that you're doing good, but it won't save you. It'll preserve you. But that last beat of your heart and the last exhale of your breath, that gate of hell blocked by the cross of Christ, you will step over it and deny him Savior. And his weeping is for you. He never wanted that for you. He's not a capricious God. He's not a mean God. He doesn't, he's not a cosmic killjoy. He doesn't come to take all the fun. He just knows the things you call fun are killing you. He wants to give you something that's lasting, purposeful, meaningful, something of substance. That's the triumphal entry. It's not politics. It's the savior of the world. And he hasn't come from Washington or Sacramento or Davos. He's come from heaven. He's come to set you free from the tyrant of sin in your life. And he says, call on the name of the Lord and I will show you great and mighty things you know not of. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your tongue, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You say those three simple words, very simple in your own heart. Lord, save me. You go, well, that's just too easy of a transaction. Yes, it doesn't cost you much, but it cost him everything because that's how valuable you are to him. 
And that's why he weeps when you deny so great a salvation. It's so simple a response. He put the cookies at the bottom shelf. And the only ones who won't reach down are the prideful. Because the ground at the foot of the cross is level. And I'm no better than you. It's not my morality that saved me. I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where their food is. And he's the bread of life. Let him enter your heart and triumph and be your king. Let him save you from the tyrant of sin and call on his name and you will be saved. It's that simple. That's Palm Sunday. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, not to deliver you from Rome, but from yourself. And today, if you call on his name, you'll become a new creature in Christ. You'll forget what's behind, you'll strive for what is ahead. And you'll take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of you. Freedom, liberty, setting captives free, contending for mankind's freedom as well. Loving your neighbor, doing good for them. Living your life as a servant. Loving the unlovable. Only God can do that. And he wants to do it today for you right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word which is true. Your word which declared as the people cried out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Even the Pharisees were angered. They rebuked and they said, tell your disciples to be quiet. And Lord, you said, I, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. They know of which they speak. I am the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But Lord, as you drew near, you realized how mistaken mankind was. He didn't come to deliver us from a political foe, but from a tyrant of sin that enslaves each and every human being on this earth, this systemic sin, and you've come to deliver us, that we would have life and life more abundant. And so God, I thank you that that transaction is simple. You come into our life when we simply say, Lord, save me. And you do. You declare, come to me, all you are burdened, heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You've been doing this on your own and you realize it is just fruitless. Nothing satisfies. As Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher said, every human heart is created with a God-shaped void. You can try every piece of the puzzle, it doesn't fit. But you call on the name of the Lord and it's a perfect fit. You're complete in Christ. You're a new creature. And the Lord says, call on me and I will save you. And he who's been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove. And so today, God says, is a day of salvation. Receive him. And he will deliver you from the slave block of sin. And you will be a new creature in Christ, a slave no longer to sin, but to righteousness. And the why and what you do from this day forward will be Jesus. And he will be the foundation stone. And he will build that temple and you will not labor in vain. And your life will store treasures in heaven where moth and rust will not destroy and thieves will not break in and steal. And as the Lord says this day, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and I go and I prepare a place for you that where I am, you will be also. The heaven awaits you. And no longer are you afraid on this earth because you are now a child of the King and no weapon fashioned against you will stand and fear no longer paralyzes. What a wonderful transaction that is. He paid it all. And all you need to do is receive it. 
Lord, save me. And he will. And so, Lord, in the quietness of every heart present and the hearing of my voice, I pray that transaction would happen right now. Those three words would be uttered on the lips of each person. Straight to you. From their lips to your ears. Lord, save me. We thank you that you are a mighty Savior and you will. And thank you, Lord, that you saved me. We love you. We praise you. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We welcome you this day. What a good God you are. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Palm Sunday. Let's stand and worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords.